0: Hey, everyone. We want to welcome you to the Floater Founder podcast. This is a Toronto-based podcast featuring local founders across all markets. We are your hosts, Samantha Lloyd.
1: And Lyson Casey. We are going to be bringing you interviews with exciting and hardworking founders. They will be sharing their experience creating and leading a company.
0: Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, you're here with Floater Founder. I'm your host, Samantha Lloyd, here with my co-host, Lizen Casey. Hello everyone. And today we have the pleasure of interviewing Gary Sarenverta, the founder and CEO of Daisy Intelligence.
2: Hi, nice to be here, thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, We're so excited to be here in your office. Um, So tell us, what is Daisy Intelligence?
2: Uh, We're uh, an AI company. Um, Our goal is to help our clients make smarter operating decisions and lead them to the future. Uh, transform uh, and and deliver disruptive economic benefits.
0: Very cool. And what gave you the idea uh, to start Daisy Intelligence? How did it begin?
2: Um, I guess a uh, long time in the '90s um, it was you know I, I, when I came out of grad school, I have a, a graduate degree in aerospace engineering, and I was really shocked at uh, the corporate world how little math and science was being used in contrast to what's being done in engineering and the sciences. And I kind of backed into this accidental opportunity, and the thought was to bring math and science to business. And I've spent my whole career doing that, uh, trying to help companies always make smarter operating decisions, um, and and that way they could dramatically increase their profit profitability. And the goal, if companies uh, are more profitable, then the cost of goods and services they sell will decrease because smart companies don't bank the money. They reinvest it in either price or innovation. And so ultimately, it uh, will lead to lower costs of goods and services for you and I, which I think ultimately will impact poverty. And that was kind of the mission I wanted to bring really the the information age which everyone talks about uh it's not about devices it's about what you do with the information and so i've spent a career trying to figure out how to how to do that
1: and i think you can attest to this that the ai industry has has changed so much in the in the 20 years since you started Uh, what would you say are some of the biggest differences in the industry when you first began and today I think the technology hasn't evolved as much as people think it
2: has. I I think the the terminology has certainly changed. I mean, back in the 90s, it was called data mining. I was one of the first worldwide users of IBM's data mining technology, uh, playing with neural nets and all the machine learning technology that's out there today. So I think the world is kind of having the exciting moment I had 25 years ago. I just had it in a very small group of four other companies that did this. Uh, Now it seems like everyone's having that aha moment. And I've spent 25 years trying to figure out what to do with that so I think what's changed is the is the amount of uh, uh, interest in the space it's kind of ebbed and flowed a little bit over time I think that's the biggest change and Moore's law is fundamentally what's been the real driver of this innovation uh, you know the ability to do uh, just astronomical amounts of computing at almost no cost that's been the fundamental driver of of this current interest, I believe.
1: So would you say there there are are, are bigger advances in machine learning other than the increase in computing that are are in the horizon? I think there needs to be a return back to something uh, a a little bit different. I think um, I'll I'll
2: define AI and and how we see it. uh, And uh, I think it's important to define it, not because it's a badge of honor, but I think for customers, it's important to know what they're buying. So I'd say the vast majority of what people define as AI is statistical analysis. So, if you only analyze historical data um, and, and and you do learning, you know the learning is really mathematical learning. So, you're trying to predict a label or uh, or create a floating point number. You have to have historical examples. So, you have labeled training data. You hear people talk about that a lot. Um, so in that case, you can only learn at the pace of time because to learn a new mathematical pattern, you have to go do an experiment in the marketplace, collect the data do some analysis, build a model. And so learning happens at the pace of time, which is not that interesting. Um, And then also there needs to be a decision framework wrapped around the model. So you have this model that says, I think that's a cat and I'm like 80% confident. Okay, well, what do you do with that? Right, so there's no decision uh, framework uh, embedded in there. And so those are some of the, that's what we call statistical analysis. Now, if if you contrast that to, What the engineering industry has done since the 1900s, uh, early 1900s is control theory. Like, so a self-driving car, for example, you wouldn't put it on the road with an empty brain and have it learn on the fly um, and crash into things and run people over and you'd go through hundreds of thousands of cars you would train it inside of a simulator. And so you have a simulation of the real world. And uh, in that case, it's the laws of physics in the case of a car. And if uh, you think of a race car, the idea is to drive the fastest lap around a racetrack. Let's say that was the car you were training. And so you can do 100 million hours of driving in one hour if you had enough computing power so you could learn faster than the pace of time. In fact, you could drive more than all of humanity has ever driven in the history of time. And then unsurprisingly, you would find novel ways of driving that people haven't gotten to just because we haven't had that experience before. And in that, it's an autonomous system in that it, it decides what to do. The, the output is drive the car. So it's turn left, turn right, hit the brake, gas, and with the, with the idea of a lap, a racetrack, you want to drive the fastest lap. The autonomous AI determines what are the optimal sequence of inputs, steering, brake, gas, and gear that generates the fastest lap time. It's not about being greedy and drive fast all the time because you drive off the road in a corner, you'd have to learn how to trade off. And the delayed reward is the fastest lap time. Whereas in prediction or statistical analysis, the immediate reward is the accuracy on each record. So you can't sacrifice now to do better later. And so that's called reinforcement learning, or it's really optimal control, which engineers have been doing since the earliest advent of flight, how NASA flies uh, satellites to Mars and Pluto, how the US Air Force flies military aircraft. And the the domain of AI was really that in the 1950s and 60s and has been kind of taken on this side jaunt of computer science and statistics for the last 40 years. I think there's going to be a return because statistics doesn't work in complex systems, something I've learned over the last 25 years. So um, yeah, I I think so. There'll be a sea change. This hype will die. There'll be the usual hype cycle I think will happen because, and we're seeing it now, you know, there's not a lot of real products out there. A lot of statistical tools, which have been around for 40 years, it's nothing new there.
0: Um, where do you kind of see AI going with companies aside from that drop off?
2: Well, I think the the idea of these autonomous systems. You know, so from you know, a great example of autonomous AI is, is a thermostat, right? There's no predictive model inside of a thermostat. It's an autonomous system. We know from the laws of physics, if you add heat to a box, it gets warm, like my office is gonna get warm in the next half hour. Uh, if you add cold to a box, it gets cooler, and uh, and you have a control system that just measures what's happening. So it's a real-time autonomous system. So that's a very simple example of what AI could be. So I think if you apply that type of thinking to business processes that are beyond human capability, I think that's where the f- focus should be. And uh, I think companies will continue to do statistical analysis Analysis. I don't think this paradigm will go away, but I, but I think, uh, I think it hasn't really added any major business results to date. It was in, invented in 1805, so if statistical analysis was the panacea, it would have run its course by now. And there's been companies delivering this for the last 30, 40 years. This technology, so yeah, I think I'm not sure how the change will happen, but I see a big change, and some of the academics are already pointing out reinforcement learning is the next big wave, and I think it's the final wave of of this space.
1: Cool, yeah. So uh, you're talking about the reinforcement learning. Uh, What about general adversarial networks? Do you see them uh, improving and getting better in the future? Uh, You've seen them use GANs to be teams of human players in video games and uh, and other applications too so and they're a little better at gen- uh, generalizing than uh, the deep deep networks uh Deep learning models. What do you think about about those?
2: Yeah, I think those. are, You can learn simple systems from data. So a self-driving car, you would teach it with a neural net and reinforcement learning. So you can use GANs as well to, to do that. But that's a that's a that's a domain where, in any given moment in a car, how many inputs, how many actions could you take? There's a turn the steering wheel. The faster you go, the smaller the turn on the wheel is. The break and gas. There's maybe less than a hundred possible inputs. Same with a video game. There's there's not a lot of inputs. So they're very simple systems. So you could do you can learn from data how to do a system with a with a, you know hundred inputs. The game of Go, really in any given turn, you have less than a hundred possible moves. The game tree is infinite, but but the number of possible moves is very small. So you can learn that from data. Now go to retail. If, for example, a retailer has 100,000 products and they have to promote 500 products every week over the course of a month for, let's say, their flyer, Well, 100,000 choose 2,000 is 10 to the power of 3,600. There's only 10 to the 80 molecules in the universe. If you have 10 to the 3,600 possible actions, you can't learn that from data. There's not enough labels. There's not enough molecules to create the labels. So you have to take a completely different approach, which is this theoretical approach that, that that we use. And I think any real complex systems require that.
0: And so you're talking about uh, retailers, which is one of your target markets, and you also have insurers. What, at the beginning, kind of gave you the idea to uh, target those customers specifically?
2: Well, there's a number of data-rich industries that have traditionally been there. So retail is a data-rich industry, insurance, banking, telecommunications, manufacturing. So those are the... Historically, typical data-rich industries. I thought the food business because it's very complex. You know, grocery especially has a huge volume of, of data, and um, it's something we can all relate to. We all have to eat. I thought, uh, you know, uh, the you know grocery business is five trillion dollars a year globally. If we can move the needle on that, I thought it would have a big impact on humanity. So that's kind of why we chose that.
1: And would you think would you say that uh, are there any industries out there where AI has not impacted greatly but it can? I think every industry um, has a has has a business process
2: that that's beyond human capability in every industry. And so I've always gone after the biggest cost line items in every industry. In retail it's merchandise planning which is beyond human capability given the 10 to the 3,600 possible actions. So it's not that people are bad at it. It's just, it's completely impossible. Similarly in insurance if, or banking, if you're doing fraud detection or anti-money laundering, you know, that kind of claims processing transaction, processing treasury is the biggest cost line item in banking. Again, to look at one tra- transaction and say, is this fraudulent or not? As a human being, you would want to compare that to every other transaction ever seen. That's beyond human capability in manufacturing going through the processing line trying to figure out what's the optimal sequence of of production or trying try to find defects in a, in a manufacturing line um, is is again a beyond human capability task the volume of data is, is huge so, so i say you can find um, core operating processes in every industry um, that are beyond human capability. And I think that's where AI can be applied. I think, it, I think those are, I think statistical models and um, have less ability to grow the total business than this reinforcement learning approach. The idea is drive a car, like a year of, of business is like a lap around a racetrack, mm-hmm. you, you know, that's the analogy. So in retail, the inputs are, you know, what's the promotional mix? What's the pricing mix? How much inventory should I allocate? Those are the inputs that drive that one year as a lap, right? So that's the analogy and and all business has that. What are the key inputs that drive the profitability to business?
0: And do you want to talk about the early days of founding this company and building the technology behind it?
2: Yeah, I like so. So, you know, I, I worked for Loyalty One, the company that runs the Air Miles Reward Program out of school, and um, built their first generation data warehouse. That's where I kind of ran into this space. And, uh, you know, great, great company. You know, lots of um, you know great people have gone through there and are still there today. And I, one thing I learned there was I saw a lot of ROI on marketing campaigns. It was, and I was doing a lot of. That's where I got excited about predictive modeling and statistics. And I kept on seeing, you know, you know, hundred 100% percent ROI, thousand percent ROI, five hundred percent ROI, all these. And I, and I, then I looked at the client uh, annual reports, and I saw the total company profit wasn't moving. And then I felt that the statistical approach of doing A B control cell testing was just moving money around the building. It wasn't really creating incremental value. And then I kind of went to IBM. I thought I'd go there. I thought I'd try to change IBM. That was a pretty naive notion. Uh, looking back on it but uh, uh, because I was using their technology and I ran IBM's uh, data mining data warehousing practice and was kind of one of kind of four or five people around the world that got called into really high-end engagements. So along that way, and again, I really started to learn that this kind of analytics is not a human endeavor. The idea of a human being sitting in front of a laptop with a software tool building models just doesn't make sense to me. In a business like retail, if you have a 100,000 products, hundreds of stores, tens of millions of customers, you couldn't have an army of people figure out what's going on. And so I kind of realized along the way that um, analytics is not a human endeavor and started to think about this autonomous machine intelligence and went back to my aerospace roots to say you need to take a physics fundamentals approach which is to build like a theory uh, an underlying theory first and then then try to do uh, analysis around that and that's the kind of reinforcement learning approach and so in 2003 when I left IBM I Um, You know, IBM is another great company and, uh, um, you know, they're great at everything, you know, the best at none. And I thought I could do this analytics thing better, really helping companies make smarter operating decisions. So I founded Daisy in 2003. People thought I was a heretic when I was going out looking for money, talking about autonomous machine intelligence. So I, I started the business myself and just funded the creation of the software development. Uh, You know, I wrote most of the software myself the first go around. I'm a very technical guy. So uh, with a few team members here, a few long-term employees, you know, we wrote the software together, funded it through revenues. We ran about 30 million in revenue through the business over 12 years um, using some of the great Canadian program, government programs we have like uh, SR&ED, tax credits for research and development and NRC IRAP, uh, grants, uh, again, for research and development. So we took advantage of those programs and really helped us get to where we were. And then in 2015, I started looking for money to really kickstart it, giving all the hype around AI at that time. So wow. that was kind of the genesis of how we got to where we are today.
0: Very cool. So you went a while with um, funding the business off of your own revenues, which is amazing. Um, do you want to talk then about the process of bringing in investors later in the company and how that process went?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was a struggle running your own business. You know, we broke even. We spent all the money on software. We probably spent about seven or eight million dollars of of money building the the first versions of the software. And then in two thousand and fifteen, I thought it's time to start looking. We had proven out the technology. We had a couple of clients. We had worked with like uh, I, you know, probably a dozen retailers and a dozen insurance companies where we proved that the technology worked. And then I thought I was ready to go. Really. Uh, go to scale and so I met some angels I started networking like crazy so as a I, I just started say so I'm just gonna meet everybody under the sun so I just started going to every networking event I could find in the Toronto area And then I just started meeting people and I ran into the angel networks uh, in Ontario so uh, ran into uh, the you know specifically the spark angel network was where I st- made the first kind of connection and I pitched them and that started a ball rolling I went and really pitched all the angel networks around the Toronto area and that was a first very small angel Rick capital raise that we did which was great it's a very small raise of uh, you know probably two hundred thousand dollars but uh that forced us to get all our paperwork in order all the minute books and all of that kind of stuff and then uh then after that a year later we raised some money from super angels uh so kind of uh, some professional colleagues knew some successful business people and they really helped us kickstart the business jsm capital and manji's holdings um, they they invested about uh, uh, one and a half million initially and then subsequently after that they've put in another uh, you, you know, about another million and a half dollars so we've raised about four and a half million over the last three years and uh, you know it's a it's an it's a process it's really I spend half my time talking to investors today and it's a uh, it's like selling, it's, I do three types of selling. I sell of em, employees, of prospective employees, I sell customers and I, I sell to investors. And, uh, and it's a long-term process to raise capital It's something that's not easy to do. So mm-hmm. it takes a lot of time and effort.
0: And um, uh, we've noticed, of course, the team is huge here. Um, talk about building that team from the early days until now.
2: Yeah, I mean the company has grown and shrunk a few times. We were, you know, we started out uh, you know, you know a, a very small group, there's about times 3 or 4 of us. A few employees have been here for 13, 14 years. Um, the company was as big as 70 people at one point when we were doing large professional services engagements, then it shrunk back. Today we're about close to 60 people. Um, and we've been um, you know, hiring a slightly different uh, group of folks. We hire engineers as opposed to computer scientists, because engineers have the more rounded some physics education, some computer programming, and computer science and mathematics. Those are the kind of multidisciplinary skills that I believe you need in this field. So, we've uh, partnered with the University of Toronto. I'm a U of T alumni. I went to Engineering Science there, and so we fund some scholarships there. We do hackathons we host kind of wine and cheese hiring events populate uh, and, and, and participate in all their uh in all their hiring events so i think uh the ontario university is between u of t and waterloo and queens and so we've been really focused on getting our technical talent from there and uh and then uh, with the other skills as well we've been you know out there and uh doing meetups and linkedin recruiting and using all the modern technology to, to, to try to do that but it's really about getting out there networking and and telling the story so it's been a it's great we have a great group of people here that buy into the mission which is exciting kind of personal validation it's humbling when people say hey they want to come work here and they enjoy it and they and they get validation and we can employ people I find it it's a it's a great privilege to employ people and I take it very seriously that uh, you know people's livelihoods are are being impacted so it's quite an amazing experience
1: There's a lot of uh, kind of misinformation, misunderstanding in the AI industry today. How do you go about managing expectations with customers and investors about what AI actually is and what it can actually do? Well, I explained it to them like I've explained to
2: you with the idea of the autonomous car. And so we have an autonomous machine intelligence that's got no human in the loop. If AI needs professional services people to deliver, is that really AI? I mean, that's... (laughs) And I, I think the you know, that's where I'd say 99% of the companies sell tools and statistical tools. So it's, it's gotta be autonomous is a big thing. And then the idea of having this causal theory that you need a theory underlying it first. It's like if you knew the location of every molecule in the universe, its position, mass, velocity, the history of its life, you could not deduce Einstein's theory of relativity. And so, and uh, Einstein's theory of relativity—you didn't need big data to create it. You, there's been f- three fundamental proofs of Einstein's theory of relativity. One, he calculated the uh, the precession of the perihelion of Mercury, which was a uh, which was a gap at the time in the early 1900s. Uh, he they, they did an experimental measurement of the bending of light by the sun, and then you know last three or four years we just measured gravitational waves. And so it took three data points to prove the right theory. You didn't need big data if Einstein Einstein waited for computer science and big data, we'd still be waiting for it because it's not in the realm of possibility. So the idea that you can learn everything from data is a big mistake, I believe, in, in anything except for toy problems or very simple systems. Any complex system, you need a theoretical, fundamentals, physics approach, which is how everything surrounding us in our lives, everything in this office today, the chairs you're sitting in, the mics, the computers, the walls, hanging pictures on the wall was all invented through the physics and engineering approach so why have we tried to throw that out and say let's throw all that away and start doing statistics you know there's eight fundamental physics theories that explain the way the world works why don't we just try to apply that to business and that's been my approach i think that the world will come back to this because the other approach i believe does not work and will not deliver the panacea and Hype results. We've been able to deliver dramatic results applying the fundamentals physics approach by, you know, growing our client sales by more than three to five percent, which in grocery is massively, massively disruptive. It's you know that's unheard of um, to to grow three to five percent comp store sales in a one percent net income industry. We can double a, a, a large company's net income. And we've done this with clients who have $40 billion in revenue down to clients who have $100 million in revenue. And if AI is to be that disruptive, then I think that's the litmus. Is it autonomous? Is it, is it dramatically shaking your net income world? If it's not, then you're probably not on the right path.
1: What is your favorite thing about being in the AI space?
2: I, I just love helping clients succeed you, you know if I can move the needle on their revenue by you know billion dollars that's amazing that means that company will succeed it means they'll be able to continue to employ their employees that their consumers will get great products and services and so that's having an impact on the world and I think that's really the mission I, I didn't do this to to get rich you know my worst nightmare would be flipping the company two years from now and having a boatload of money in the bank and then going okay, what do I do with myself now? I'd rather see this thing be wildly successful, be a brand daisy up there with the Googles and, and the Facebooks of the world and the Apples of the world and, uh, and have the brand outlive me because if, that, if we had that level of success and that would really change the world fundamentally.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's a, definitely a different approach, I think, than a lot of tech companies have nowadays, like the exit is so, like, that's kind of what everyone looks um, for. Did you know at the beginning that this was a long-term brand you yeah, wanted to was build? this is a
2: long-term plan. I mean, I mean, I think there's this game that, I, I, you know, and I don't want to poo-poo the process like everyone can chase their own dreams, right? But uh, I see that, you know, when, when companies get flipped, does that technology survive or just does it disappear off the face of the earth? And I think probably 90%, if I was to guess, and some. Nobody could correct me if they have the statistics, as yeah. I'm just speaking off the cuff here. But I would say 90% of the exits and flips, that technology disappears off the face of the earth, never to be seen again. And it was just a big money-making flip thing. Pour a bunch of money into something, get someone to buy it, flip it, and and you know, big, big percentage of the time that technology disappears. So to me, that's not interesting. I've as a, ever since I was a kid, I wanted to leave a mark on the world, and I thought doing this thing is what my skill set was so um, it's always been the vision to to be the biggest thing ever I don't I haven't always talked about it because people thought I was crazy enough to begin with so you know to say you want to be the next Google or Facebook you know I, you know if I'd said that 15 years ago you know I, th- those companies weren't around then but uh, but whoever you know, be the next IBM you know people would think you're crazy but if you don't dream big you'll never get there that's what I tell my employees all the time like why not us like if you don't dream it it'll never happen and who knows? what'll happen I mean a lot of things can uh, go sideways or different between here and there but uh, like if you don't dream it you'll never
1: get there for sure and and I know I'm sure that all the companies that started out small and made it big definitely had the intentions of making it big otherwise they wouldn't make it to begin with Um, so in in the AI space there's been in the machine learning and the research of it more so there's been a lot a, a big shift towards the openness Uh, of models and and being able to collaborate and share with, uh, uh, different organizations and institutes your uh, institutions, the the, the different models. Um, Would you say that that has been uh, an improvement uh, for the the technology in the space? Yeah, for sure. I mean, open source is good, it provides easy access. I've never paid for
2: analytical software because I thought it was, you could write your own. Well, you know, if you had the capability, then we, we never paid for it. The open source is great. Many, most companies are consumers of technology. So using the open source is something great. If you're doing a, for us, we don't use any open source software and the analytics pieces of what we do because I have a kind of three fundamental philosophies. One is um, when we deliver a decision to a customer that's going to impact their business. If there's a mistake made, I want to own that mistake and I want to have written every line of source code and be able to trace the bug back to our source code that we wrote as opposed to, oh, it's in Google's TensorFlow library. Sorry, can't help you. I don't know what to do because we don't know it. And if you're a user, the technology you don't develop the expertise so you know if you're writing Python code and you go input data Python frame call deep learning output data frame that's not really any expertise and so if you write your own code it forces you have the deep expertise and then finally is patent violations I think it's unclear like Google has patented deep learning so if you're using open source software using tensorflow will Google come sue you for patent license infringement I've asked my patent lawyers question and they said they were unclear if that's doable or not and so i don't want to be sued for using infringing on someone's patents uh, even through open source software and i wouldn't be surprised given you know if any any you know multi-billion dollar business comes out using tensorflow that google's gonna file cross-licensing uh, patent infringement lawsuits, which is what big IT companies do. So those are three reasons we don't use open source. We are a technology creator, probably one of the few in Canada creating raw um, artificial intelligence technology and that's an exciting thing for prospective employees. The vast majority of companies are AI users. in that case, you know go go to town on open source and it's been a great boon for those companies and then saves them a lot of money buying otherwise expensive analytics software
0: for sure. And um, as a CEO of this company you obviously because you built the tech you have such a deep understanding of it, do you think that all CEOs should take that approach and really understand their technology and how does it benefit?
2: I think every person is different. Like I, I guess I'm there's probably different types of CEOs. I'm not the, the super tech CEO like uh, that I've, I I can do all the technical jobs and the in the company, and that's one certainly one approach. And I've been able to that helped me save me a lot of money along the way because I didn't have to hire a CTO. I was able to because I'm a numbers guy. I was able to do the finance stuff in the early days by myself. So I was kind of the CFO, and and uh, so I wore multiple hats, uh, which is not great. <laughs> you know, that's as as we've now grown, I've been. You know getting rid of those hats which is kind of a, a relief to finally find people who are professionals at those jobs you can do those even better than I can but uh, I think you need to look at your strengths and weaknesses as an individual CEO's fundamental job is to sell the vision and be out there to raise capital make sure the company has the capital and needs to keep operating and you don't have to be a technical person but you have to drive the vision and lead the vision and uh, you can find partners so if you're in the early days you're a young entrepreneur you know if you're not the tech person then find a technical partner the CTO or somebody like that to build the tech um, but although my general feeling is that we push young people too quickly into on, entrepreneurism like you know I, I could never have had the success if I didn't have job experiences first I learned about corporate finance from working at air miles and owning a budget and even my first job at the University of Toronto I worked at the Institute for Aerospace Studies I ran a research project they gave me a budget of five million dollars, and I had to figure out how to manage that and spend. Figure out how to conserve the money, and then I ran a and line at Air Miles. I ran a P and L at IBM, and that all that corporate financial learning and managing cash and that was invaluable. And I think the kids are in such a rush uh, to start jobs, and I think there's, uh, if you especially if you're a technical education, you know, and engineers, they have very little business education or acumen, and and. Uh, Although it's it, you know if that's what you really want to do, go for it. But I think having a couple of job experiences is invaluable, and there's no need to be in such a huge rush.
0: Yeah, I definitely have always said that there's, um, for me personally, I always liked having the office experience. Um, even the basics of just how an office functions really help when you're running a company. Absolutely. Just that, that kind of understanding.
2: And then entrepreneurism is you need a very thick skin. Like I, I spoke at the Hatcher at U of T and I said that entrepreneurism is it's like a roller coaster. You go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows in the same day. Um, you know, In the early days, I was the last guy paid. I invested everything. Every penny I ever owned in this business, sold a couple houses, cashed in my RSPs to keep this business going. You know, my creditors would call me. You know, those little because I never I was late paying all my bills. You know, so to have that intestinal fortitude to grind it out, and then you get a big deal, you win this the the largest deal you've ever done. You're flying high, and the next day another customer fires you. You're riding the lowest of the lows then an employee quits and sues you because they think you did something wrong you know like it's this if you don't have the intestinal fortitude to ride that kind of roller coaster then you really you, you need to and, and i think they don't talk enough about the reality of entrepreneurism it's all it's about the exit you know uh, yeah yeah And and the exit is such an anticlimax. I, I, you know, if someday we have an IPO, which i like to have, you know, that that is such an anticlimactic moment because I have the last 15 years of my life running this business it's given me purpose it's paid me a salary i put my kids through school and all the highs and lows all of that learning it gave me purpose in life it's not about the exit it's the journey the exit is just the anticlimactic moment at the end and if you're living for that you're missing the point the point is you know human beings need purpose and I think for me this has given given me purpose and uh and and at the end of the day whatever happens be it we get wound up which i don't believe will happen but if we have an ipo or an exit that'll be very anticlimactic at that moment because as there's been so much effort that has gone into that moment that uh that's not what we should be striving for. If you don't love every second of what you do, then you're in the wrong place. You know?
1: Where do you see the AI, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, data analytics, whatever you want to call it? Where do you see the industry going in the next ten to twenty years?
2: Um,
1: I think it'll. I, I think there'll be a, you know, a
2: bit of a trough of disillusionment, and as and there'll be a realization that. Um, you know, AI and machine learning is just statistics. There's there's an MIT paper published that recently said that, that well, I think we'll return back to kind of this reinforcement learning control theory approach. And I've seen a lot of uh, papers written about reinforcement learning um, recently, which I think that's where the, the future will go. And we need to look for problems that can be solved with reinforcement learning. And those are the, you know, running a company type of problems. The reinforcement learning people still are not, fo- they're focused on toy reinforcement learning problems. They haven't, in- think I haven't seen too much about you have to come up with a fundamental theory first like we have the laws of retail we have a set of differential equations that are like the laws of physics that we have the laws of retail and we have the laws of risk and that's a and so the world hasn't come to that place yet I believe it will for more complex problems and there are some problems that you that 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 are data only problems uh but, but I think uh, I think this reinforcement learning will, will rise and then it'll be more true autonomous systems. I believe in this autonomous enterprise that part of every company will be run by machines in the same way that in DAISY could be running our clients merchandise planning in retail, the, the promotional pricing and forecasting planning that could be executed by a machine, no human in the loop. I think that's what's gonna happen over the next 10 to 20 years, more of those types of things, applying AI to problems beyond human capability.
0: All right, so we're going to go into the rapid fire round. So we're just okay. gonna ask you a bunch of fun questions. Okay. What is your favorite thing about the city of Toronto?
2: I think it's the multicultural aspect. The city has such great uh, cultural experiences, dining, art, uh, the, the the people here, uh, the the diversity. I think that's that's the best part of this city for sure.
0: We agree. We think we're really lucky to have that. And um, what's your favorite spot or street in Toronto?
2: Ooh, that's a. T- uh, I, don't know, I love the distillery district and and I think that's a cool place we when we're sometimes you know bored on a Saturday afternoon we'll go walk around there and have lunch at one of the restaurants and that's kind of a cool historical landmark so mm. I'd say that area is one of my favorites
0: awesome and um what is your favorite snack?
2: my favorite snack cheese that's a tough one I like either salty or sweet it depends on the day so I'm either going for like a bag of zesty cheese doritos right uh that, that's the favorite. And and then Haagen-Dazs ice cream is a passion uh, yes. of...
1: It's the best ice cream. Yeah,
2: my wife, when it's on sale, she'll go out and buy yeah, like same. 10, 10 same. jugs because it's so expensive, those little tubs you buy. Yeah, that's we have a, Either of those two, yeah.
0: Yeah, we have the rule, if it's on sale, we have to get it. Like, you can't pass it up. And um, what is the last book you read?
2: The last book, I'm, I'm sitting right now reading a book on general relativity, so the Steve Weinberg book on on cosmology and general relativity and Riemannian geometry. Uh
1: what's your favorite app?
2: I like all the all the sports apps. I'm a huge tennis fan, so like current, currently it's the Wimbledon app yeah. sends me all the scores and so we do whatever sporting event if it's golf or tennis or F1 I have my
1: sports apps that I that I'm in all the time. Okay. Cool. And uh what's your favorite place that you travel to? The favorite place that I travel to um
2: yeah, I mean, I, I I spent some time in Maui. That was spectacular. I went there on a data mining training course mm-hmm. of all boondoggles back in, like, 1997 because they had the Maui High Performance Computing Center. So I spent the week there. Maui spectacular, yeah. Do you have a go-to karaoke song? Oh, go-to karaoke song. It's got to be uh, um, what's the soft sell song, you know, uh, Tainted Love.
1: Oh, oh, yeah. oh <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's the a couple. Oh, other Oh, the long version. You know, we've done some bad renditions of that. Uh, what's a piece of advice you'd
2: give to a founder? Um, you know, be perseverant. You know, if you believe you have a vision, you gotta you know morph your vision, but perseverance is key. You know, the you know Koshla from Silicon Valley, from Koshla Ventures, he said that. Um, being an entrepreneur is lucky. You have to survive long enough to have the odds of luck fall in your favor. And so, perseverance. And if you believe you have the right vision, then don't give up on it and
0: grind it out. That's awesome. Cool. That's everything. Well, that's everything. So, yeah, thank you so much uh, for having us in your office and oh, letting us set up the podcast here. Um, this was an amazing talk. We learned so much from you. So, thank you.
2: Great. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so
1: much.
0: We wanted to thank you so much for coming in. We had such a great time interviewing you for Floater Founder.
1: And thank you so much to our listeners. We are so excited to share more founder stories with you. Until
0: Until next time.